You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. Once again, Rob Barrett, GM of LATimes.com, Larry Gerbrandt, GM of Nielsen Analytics, Claude Brodesser, host of The Business for NPR and blogger at TMZ.com, and Kevin Roderick, uh, the editor of LAObserve.com, the well-known media blog, uh, go on the record online. In fact, there was a study, in fact, I think it was a Nielsen Analytics study a while back where people would were so, this is at the height of his career before he became the raging, uh, drunken anti-Semite Mel, when he was back, when he was friendly Mel, who was, you know, making arrests and, and a helpful, fun cop, uh, people would go to the box office and say, I'd like two of Mel Gibson, please. They didn't even know what the movie was called. They didn't care. It was Mel Gibson. That's all I need to know. I'm in. Tom Hanks. I'll go see it. So I have a hard time, you know, wanting a benefit concert for Tom Cruise or for Tom Hanks because... I think Tom Hanks made uh, $70 million from uh, Castaway, All In. That's an astonishing amount of money. But it's, uh, it's not disproportionate, because if you put Schmecky Schmengelheimer in that role, <laughs> nobody goes to see it. And that's the problem. And thank you for joining us uh, and for downloading the second episode uh, in a two-part series. Uh, this is an audio transcript of a panel that was held uh, as the final closing session for a course I teach at UCLA Extension called An Introduction to New Media PR. Uh, Over the course of five nights, we covered blogging, podcasting, RSS, websites, social media. Uh, We had a a, 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 a introductory lecture on each of those subjects, and then we actually brought in other experts, guest lecturers, to talk about it. And the last night, uh, the last night of the course, uh, we had a media, uh, new media mavens expert panel, and uh, I was absolutely honored to be able to bring in uh, the level of um, – uh, of expert that we did, uh, you, you've got their names. We I just mentioned them to you before I played that little clip there. Um, my name is Eric Schwartzman, and I teach the course on New Media PR at uh, UCLA Extension. I was um, flattered to be recruited to teach it because they felt as though the program for journalism and, and public relations um, could benefit from the addition of new media uh, awareness and training to their curriculum. So um, so I did do that. And I also uh, teach a New Media PR boot camp, uh, which I just had completed for the Singaporean government and for a number of other um, organizations where I actually go into the company and, uh, and do either a one-day or a two-day workshop um, specifically for their uh, either PR department or, or corpcom department or marketing department or in some cases uh, people on the tech side, IT as well. Um, so this is uh, the final panel discussion, and um, we discuss a number of different things that I think you might find interesting. Even if you didn't hear the last ep- episode, uh, the first part of the of the uh, of the panel discussion, I think you'll nevertheless find this interesting. Um, it runs about forty five minutes. Uh, the panel itself was you know, almost, almost an hour and a half, and I just felt that was too long to release in one single podcast. So I'm breaking it up into two. Uh, in addition to um, helping organizations with professional development, um, I am also the founder and chairman of iPressroom Corporation. Uh, we help organizations extend the reach of their PR and marketing campaigns uh, using the latest new media tools and services. And, and we, what we've done is we've integrated those tools and services into one powerful online dashboard. So you don't have to cobble together a bunch of you know Web 2.0 tools that maybe aren't supported and um, aren't going to be appropriate for mission-critical uh, communications. Um, this is supported with a service-level agreement and all wrapped up into one um, easy-to-use uh, interface. And to see what we do more specifically, you can go to ipressroom.com forward slash visible. I am also the managing director of a PR firm, Schwartzman & Associates. Uh, we are a Los Angeles-based agency, a boutique agency, smaller agency, and we specialize in meeting the needs of entertainment, media, and technology clients. Um, and you can get more information about us as well as the other professional development um, 
programs that I'm involved with, which include uh, Bulldog Reporters um, Advanced PR Technology Conference, which I chair uh, twice a year, uh, and also the Community Intelligence Online PR Convergence Conference, which is going to be held in Los Angeles in May and should be quite interesting. I'm actually going to um, get a chance to uh, do a sit-down one-on-one interview with Stow Boyd there um, as, as a keynote session. Um, so it should be quite interesting. You can get information on all those things and more at www.schwartzmanpr.com. If you're interested in this episode, uh, you may also be interested in subscribing to this podcast. Uh, we typically interview journalists from the mainstream media or other uh, media insiders about how technology is changing the way they do their jobs and the way people consume media and information. And we've been fortunate enough to um, interview Ken Aletta of the New Yorker magazine, Walt Mossberg of the New York Times, David uh, Walt Mossberg of the Wall Street Journal, David Pogue of the New York Times, and many others. All those are still available to you on demand. You can get those either through the blog, www.spinfluencer.com, where I cross-post the show notes, or at the podcast website, www.ontherecordpodcast.com. And also, if you have questions, comments, or feedback, Please, I really would like to get them. Send them to Eric, E-R-I-C, at OnTheRecordPodcast.com. The second half of the um, New Media Mavens panel discussion runs about 40 minutes. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, It comes to you unedited after this. Don't be left behind. Get the latest online PR tools and services from my press room. Powerful, easy to use, available on demand. Extend your sphere of influence online with iPressroom, tools for online media centers, virtual private press rooms, RSS news feeds, podcasts, and more at www.ipressroom.com. iPressroom, always on, even when you're off. Rob, um, much uh, of the turmoil at the Los Angeles Times has been made public by the blogosphere. Um, of which, uh, uh, of course, Kevin at LA observed as a member. Uh, But I'm thinking specifically about something I saw on Fishbowl LA about an internal LA Times memo that appeared online, and here's an excerpt. Um, All Times journalists should receive, as quick as possible, a crash course in the basics of web journalism, including what works online and what doesn't, and the importance of the website to the paper's survival. How does the Times, and the world for that matter, uh, intend to get that training? Uh, well, we're, we'll have most of it done in two weeks. <laughs> there, so we, we, you, you just kind of make things happen. I mean, there are a lot of people that have um, uh, taken it upon themselves. There are some people uh, uh, on the editorial staff who are um, very conversant in web and, and you know, power users of the web, and there are a lot of people who aren't. And it, it, it does seem kind of interesting that uh, in journalists uh, be, being professionally curious, professionally intellectually curious, would um, in some ways uh, not many people in, in, in a lot of newsrooms around the country have been users of the new medium. And uh, they're so really, there's a, you know we have a, a crash course for those people who've really been kind of doing what they've been doing for years and, and, and working very hard to do it uh, on some basic concepts. And, and uh, it's not just how reporting goes, it's, it's even how people use websites. One thing that we, um, uh, this is, I mean, just to give you some, some ideas that, are, that, come, that happen in these discussions, we're not really publishing to latimes.com to publish in real time. You're publishing to the web. Uh, you're publishing really to get your story out to hundreds or uh, thousands of sites in some cases. WashingtonPost.com uh, has a deal with Technorati that you mentioned earlier, and a third of their traffic comes from blogs, largely via that arrangement. Um, and it really is in the be- to the benefit, personally, I think, of a reporter that wants to get his or her story out to have many people linked to it, to be out there uh, and have their material uh, amongst the commentariat, and people you know, generally want to go back and see what all the blogging uh, was referring to. Um, they don't always, but they still, you know, uh, Kevin and, and Fishbowl LA and company uh, really, uh, you know, credit sources talk about it, add tons of perspective to it, and that's as it should be. Um, people in mainstream newsrooms need to get comfortable with that, those, those, those layers. 
Um, and the newspapers really, uh, you know, have to then uh, focus on you know providing primary source material that they have the you know the capital to to provide and be accountable for the uh, the shading. You know, nothing is truly impartial. The other ideas that that come out of this are, um, you know, people don't come to uh, most newspaper websites to the, the homepage. They mostly come from a search engine like Google. They read one story and they leave. Um, so. Uh, think about what you ought to provide on that page with the story. What would engage people more? What would be, do you involve them in a discussion with other people? Has the newspaper done something to create the environment where that discussion can happen? Um, what other parts of the story can people get other than just reading it? Um, so now all these reporters really have to think about, it's not as simple as strapping on a camera and going out, but there are uh, they should be uh, going through databases and making, um, helping guide people in, into using the databases themselves and topics like public education. There's just a different job that has to be done and some different skill sets that need to be in the building. But a lot of those skill sets do exist and there's, uh, there's really, there are 20 or 30 people I can probably name who have had latent skills or, or have been doing this who are now able to do it uh, and uh, you know, in, in their official uh, you know, work day. Kevin, yeah, I just wanted to add, which, and I find that very, a very interesting and telling culture shift. Um, eight or ten years ago, I was in charge of, at the times, of trying to get reporters in the newsroom to use computers, really for the first time, other than to write their stories. To you know, I was in charge of the training to get them to use you know, databases and, and even Excel spreadsheets. And it was a chore just to get 10 people to show up at these sessions for a week. And, and in those days, there was, you could not email someone at the time and, and expect with any regularity that the email would be read because most of the reporters were not even receiving emails as recently as six or seven years ago. But the real cultural shift, I think, about reporters, and it's actually brilliant of the newspapers to start doing this, Reporters used to, to live for the page one story. That used to be the, the sort of motivating force. Well, now I am constantly at LA Observe getting tips from reporters who want me to notice their story, no matter where it is in the paper, page one or otherwise, so that I will link it strictly so that they will rise in the <coughs> paper's internal rankings of the top 10 most linked stories or the top 10 most emailed stories. That is now the sort of inner metric that reporters use for validation as, as to whether their stories have gotten out there, as whether they make the top ten list. If they make the number one most emailed story that day, they're buying drinks at the local bar. I mean, it's, it's that kind of, uh, kind of a feedback loop now. Just to add one tiny thing to that, you know, the other, that's sort of the Google algorithm works in a similar way. You know, the more people link to you, the higher your, your story, your web page goes. And um, one of the, the ways this economy is working is that it's very unlikely, I would guess, that somebody from the marketing department could email Kevin and um, uh, influence him too much. Um, and this really means that it's up to the journalists themselves to have a credible pitch to the various uh, bloggers, other sites, and interest groups out there. And this is how we think about things now. Um, uh, a health reporter may not have a big audience in LATimes.com or, or around LA, but there are hundreds of health websites where that story from the LA Times may be of huge interest. So we're amassing mailing lists of those people. And when you do that, you have to be credible. You have to give them something that they think is good. So in a way, it's a very healthy economy that you have to uh, uh, interact with uh, hundreds or maybe more people who do what Kevin does and persuade them that what you have has some value. Uh, it's, 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 it's good, I think, for journalism, period. Larry, did you want to answer something Yeah, uh, I wanted to bring it back just for a second to, to media economics, uh, which have to go hand in hand. I mean, every one of these guys up here, including me, expect to be paid for the intellectual property we're creating. At the same time, Online advertising is not the full equivalent of a full-page magazine ad or a circular inserted into a newspaper. And it's, we're still playing catch-up and are going to be for quite some time on how effective a banner ad is in uh, an email or a blog um, you know, getting just 
having that brand name out there has a certain value, but getting people to click on it. And we're still really in day one of trying to figure out how to create the interactivity that really creates an enhanced experience. Internet advertising has the potential to be far more, and I'm going to use a word that's become a term of art in advertising, far more engaging than traditional advertising. Because you can, um, I mean, there's an infamous website uh, called, Sh uh, I think it was Norelco, or maybe it was Braun, I think it was Braun, called Shave Everywhere. <coughs> that was probably, people would go there and spend 10, 15 minutes because it was fun uh, and um, interesting and racy and a lot of other things. But it was an example of a very engaging ad campaign. Uh, the Super Bowl ads are a good example of engaging advertising and all the hoopla that surrounds that. But uh, the internet, the banner ads, as, as much of a value as Google has made off of search advertising, are still have questionable engagement value and click-through value. And you know, uh, you're going to start hearing a lot more about engagement on Madison now because that's going to become the new metric. It's not just a pure CPM world. It's did we actually engage the ad viewer? And none of this content gets created unless <coughs> at some point in the chain it gets monetized. Claude, let's talk about movies for a second. We know that uh, less than 20% of, the, of uh, revenue from a movie comes from the box office. Um, you know, other than canceling these top-heavy deals with stars like uh, Tom Cruise, what should the studios be doing to save money? Should they be cutting production costs? Should they be looking at digital distribution? What's the answer? Um, well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, a number of things. You know, the, the number one thing that makes a movie uh, expensive is not necessarily the number one thing that makes a movie uh, not profitable. Now, here's what I mean by that. We can make a movie, a big effects movie, and what makes it expensive is the effects. Now, we we're, this is contrary to everything we were taught uh, when CGI came out, which was, we're not going to have to build anything anymore. Everything's going to be, you know, virtual, and it's going to be cheap. Well, you know, there's a saying in the effects business, which is, uh, fast, cheap, good, pick any two. And never is that more true than for the special effects business because, you know, you, you employ a huge a number of people to blow up a planet or to, you know, make a monster vomit uh, acid through its third nipple or whatever it's supposed to be doing. And then it turns out, well, this part of the story isn't quite working, so we're going to cut that and maybe we can put this somewhere else. It's like, well, yeah, except that's a $30 million shot. So, um, you know, now what? Now, the other thing that makes movies not profitable is gross participants, and that's people like Tom Cruise and Tom Hanks. And I don't think that they should necessarily be penalized uh, just because they brought you to buy a ticket. In fact, there was a study, in fact, I think it was a Nielsen analytics study a while back where people would, were so, this is at the height of his career before he became the raging, uh, drunken anti-Semite Mel, when he was back, when he was friendly Mel, who was, you know, making arrests and, and a helpful, fun cop, uh, people would go to the box office and say, I'd like two of Mel Gibson, please. They didn't even know what the movie was called. They didn't care. It was Mel Gibson. That's all I need to know. I'm in. Tom Hanks. I'll go see it. So I have a hard time, you know, wanting a benefit concert for Tom Cruise or for Tom Hanks because I think Tom Hanks made uh, $70 million from uh, Castaway, All In. That's an astonishing amount of money. But it's, uh, it's not disproportionate, because if you put Schmecky Schmengelheimer in that role, <laughs> nobody goes to see it. And that's the problem. Now, I would. Well, you and Schmecky go way back. But, but the point here is that I think what's killing the movie business, I, I was chatting with John Favreau about a month ago. We had him on the show to talk about uh, producing Iron Man. He's directing this, this Marvel Comics adaptation of this classic Character, and we started talking. Uh, you know, one of the things that really appealed to New Line, because boy, if ever there was a studio that has the special scissors that cut the pennies in half, it's New Line. 
they, one of the things they appreciate about John Favreau is this is a guy who's a practical effects director rather than a, a CGI maniac. And by that I mean the last movie he made, was, which was called Zathura. If you have kids, you probably took them to see it on a Saturday. Um, it, it was basically made with, as the name suggests, practical effects. They put a gigantic house on a gimbal, and you know when it shakes, it's actually shaking. It's a house shaking. It's not uh, done with computers, and it's and it saved probably he estimated about fifty to sixty million dollars on the cost of the movie by actually doing this. Now the downside is when you blow that house up, there's no second take. That's you know we're done. We got to build another house for you if you if you didn't like that take. Um, but I think CGI is the is the big culprit, and the fact that uh, you know it, just because you can do it uh, doesn't mean you should is not a, a maxim that Hollywood always gets. Um, you know, the other thing I, I would emphasize is that there is this tendency, and I'm not sure how we can get this through the public's head, but there's become this horse race mentality about what was number one at the box office. Well, you know, there's a lot of stupid people on the planet, so I, I don't particularly think that... And was, lazy. Yeah, and lazy. Um, <laughs> yours truly. Um, but I don't particularly understand why being number one at the box office necessarily should should drive people to go see a film. I mean, the best movie I've seen all year is uh, Letters from Iwo Jima. And, you know, you could shoot a bullet in that theater and not hit anybody in the, in the row I was sitting in. It's the best movie all year. But there's this horse race mentality about box office. And the fact that box office means, I don't want to say so little, but it's a fifth of what a movie's going to make. The problem is that these, these companies are so paranoid schizophrenic when it comes to these numbers. They don't tell you what, how much it made in DVD. They don't tell you what they with the deal they made with HBO and pay cable was, th those revenue streams are closed off from the public. But for some reason, you know, we've gotten in the habit of saying, what'd you make? And, uh, and they disclose it. So, you know. One of the amazing things, just to, to do a riff off of that, is it's not only those of us in the industry that talk about what was the gross. Yeah, because of the internet and the r very rapid dissemination of information, People on the street talk about what was the top grossing movie. I mean, it's become a, a the, the economics of, of Hollywood and the dissemination of that top 10 list and the sophistication of the people out there, the, even the casual movie goer checking that information before they go to the theater to decide what they're going to see. It's sort of like the equivalent of buying uh, tunes off of uh, iTunes based on what everybody else, what's their favorite. And we want to be, the, we always want to be the popular kids and do the cool popular thing, except you know, for you and I. Yeah. I'd like to uh, turn it over again to Rob. Rob, you obviously, uh, you guys made a very bold move with the Wikitorial experiment that you guys did last year. For How many people are aware of the Wikitorial experiment? A few people. Tell us, if you would, what happened and what you learned from it. Um, let's see. The uh, it's interesting because of the uh, so this is this is how that came about when uh, Mike Kinsley was at the uh, LA Times then and um, we both were talking about an idea that I think is is um, uh, it, interesting. You look at newspaper editorials and it's an editorial board of a few people that very few people know. And it carries the weight of the institution with the opinion, and, and often editorials serve a great purpose when they're uh, when they're right, and they can influence public policy, etc. But um, the paper really didn't provide a vehicle for channeling opinion outside that room, and of the idea of sort of an open source editorial uh, that tapped uh, a wider group of people was interesting to us. Um, one view of that could be that you have anybody who's interested in the topic come by and contribute. Another view would be that let's go regularly out to a group of 50 people in a certain industry or a certain, uh, any name the group, and, and have editorials that aren't just from inside the building. Um, as often happens, uh, a lot of uh, technology, in, uh, especially in newspapers, um, a lot of what I've had to do is, is move away from, frankly, a lot of the technology you now see up there and, and, and toward other things. Um, the quickest way to get the idea up to, to have fun and test was just to use wiki software. Um, and the editorial, uh, the opinion department ran this. And uh, when big institutions uh, do these experiments, they're you know they're they're fairly easy targets to go uh, play with if you um, are 
uh, 13 <laughs> or under and, uh, and, and, and know how to hack any code. Um, and uh, in that case, I think the idea was to try something. We literally had a conversation with the editor and publisher uh, at the time saying people may put uh, pornography and other things up. And the way that Wiki works is that you generally have, and anything like that, collaborative software and content, um, you accept imperfection, you accept that people will essentially put up graffiti, and um, you have enough people in the mix so that over time you tend to get a good result. And what we found in the first uh, 48 hours um, was that um, you can't, you know, an editorial itself isn't the best thing for a wiki. We got, it was an Iraq editorial, and you got, um, you know, if it's pro or con, you know, the pro comes up, and then somebody con comes up and literally rewrites it and says, no, Iraq, it was a terrible idea. But when you diverge into two, it, it, ought, it split within hours into two uh, editorials, one pro, one con. And then you had people correcting facts and adding things, and it was sort of interesting. Uh, that was Friday. Um, Saturday at uh, 2 in the morning, um, you know, somebody actually, and this is something the paper didn't get into publicly at the time, uh, you know, there were uh, various things, graffiti. We left it up. We let it run. We thought this will work or not. Next week we'll put up another experiment. We'll have a spirit of experimentation. If it gets attached to the LA Times name, people should just uh, suck it up. And you had uh, someone, John Carroll, who'd been a fairly uh, uh, conservative editor in many ways in terms of preserving the values of journalism, say, hey, let's try this stuff. Uh, I actually took it down. I made the decision to take it down because uh, in the uh, in the dark of night, uh, uh, somebody actually posted child pornography, and I was legally required to uh, hand the server over to the FBI, and it became a, a target. And so um, we uh, thought about just putting it up again, uh, you know, trying something else in a more controlled way, with. 150 white hats, which are you know volunteers out there who are looking to take things down and keep the spirit of it going, and um, it's just one of the things that you know Mike Mike moved on to other things, and you know we didn't really do it again. But where we're going with the uh, online projects for the paper is very much back in that direction. You can't. Uh, there's a lot of concern, say, in the legal department about why aren't there copy editors, editors for bloggers? Well, I don't think that LA Observe would function too well or too rapidly if you had to have 10 copy editors uh, in the, in, uh, there. Um, we have to have uh, a graduated way of looking at that where big, well-researched pieces go through checks and other people are trusted to. Um, Sue Carpenter, the motorcycle columnist who's got great um, ideas for internet, uh, does a Q&A with uh, a lot of people every week. It's to her email account. Uh, and the Q&A that goes in the paper is edited by, you know, three people or something like that. And she ought to be able to answer questions on the website without an editor as long as there are general guidelines. She's not an idiot. Um, we need to have user-generated <laughs> content and it's not practical to edit the stuff before it goes up. What you can do is set rules and have a kind of cultural center of gravity in the community that you create. And actually, it's an old example, but um, uh, Back in 1995, in a Time magazine, we started, when we were running the, uh, the AOL boards, I thought the thing to do was to, to invite people in and do whatever people wanted. But we had a guy, I don't know if anyone's familiar with uh, The Well, which was one of the original online communities out of San Francisco, but a guy named Tom Mandel, who was one of the founders, we brought in to run the community for Time. The first thing he did was kick people out. Anybody who came in, he kicked maybe three quarters of the people who came in out of the news community, and we thought, well, that's not good. We need an audience. And he set a tone, and he said, this is what we're talking about here. And it became so popular that when Time made an ill-fated decision to move over to CompuServe, incredible, I think half the people on AOL canceled their AOL accounts and signed up to CompuServe because he ran such a good community. And uh, I think newspapers have to find a way to do that so that the uh, properly performed wikitorial or or community that involves people will, you know, have have that center. But the newspaper, uh, the L.A. Times, other newspapers have to tolerate graffiti. They have to tolerate profanity. If somebody complains that something was up for a while that offended somebody, you just have to live with it. And the newspaper won't do that in print. I have just one more question for the panel, and then I want to open it up uh, for questions from the audience. So if you have questions, uh, get ready. And this one's for Kevin. Kevin, since one important goal of good journalism is objectivity, and uh, the goal of blogging, could be argued, is, is subjectivity, the idea of personal voice, how do you reconcile the two? And if you introduce personal voice and subjectivity under the masthead of the New York Times or the LA Times, 
is it possible that that could somehow hurt that news publishing organization's reputation? Well, I guess I would, I would push back a little bit at your original premise that the, the purpose of journalism is objectivity. I think objectivity has been a, you know, a tool for, for good journalism for the last you know, couple of generations of journalists, but it, it, nothing before that. And certainly was never exclusively um, something that was practiced by good journalists. You know, you look at the, at the LA Times, and there's, look at the LA Times today, and one of their most prominent journalists is Steve Lopez, the columnist, and he's he's identified as a columnist, of course. But you know what what marks what he does is strong point of view. Um, it, you know, it's, it's not his opinions that matter; it's the strong point of view that he brings to his pieces and the sort of crusading nature of of what he does. And that's you know that's been true of top journalism, you know. Forever, really, and I, so I don't really see a conflict between the more point of view driven um, writing you see on blogs and the more objective reporting that you see on newspapers and uh, you know and some other media sources. I think they complement each other quite well, actually, and I and I do think we're starting to see a little bit more of the um, as readers learn to get their information and have decided that they want their information from blogs as, as one key source, I think you're seeing the value in telling a story with a strong point of view. You know, the Times and the New York Times and, and magazines like the New Yorker and others that specialize in literary journalism have seen the value, the storytelling value of a strong, a strong point of view and a narrative drive to to what are essentially could you know could be written as news pieces, and um, I actually see that as one of the strengths of the new blogging medium as as an information source is that you know a, a well a, you know kind of a, a well mannered well balanced strong point of view uh, uh, website is an effective way to communicate information. I have no problems with it at all. Let's open it up for questions. Um, before we do, I'm going to repeat your question because you're not mic'd and we're recording this. So uh, you, ma'am, you raised your hand first. I'm going to do my best to paraphrase. The question, your name? Margot. Margot, and the question is directed to Rob, and it's uh, a follow-up on the notion of culture change. What specific things are being done to help that change happen in the newsroom? Yes? More or less? OK. Um, I, I, it's hard to uh, do justice to the question, but maybe I can try a couple of examples, because there's, there, there's so many things that, that need to happen and are happening. Um, one thing is, it's really, um, uh, there are a lot of things that you could say that people are doing and will have to do more of, um, you know, multimedia journalism, reporters training in, in uh, doing audio interviews and, and, and video, but really the heart of it is something, you know, the, the cultural part of it is in first realizing how people consume information, that they have multiple sources and that you have to think about writing and doing the things beyond writing in that mode. One a called big cultural change that has been made into a coherent company-wide project, um, and not everyone's a fan of it, but I am uh, in certain ways, the Wall Street Journal redesigned. And they brought together different disciplines within the paper and outside to recraft what it is. And essentially, the philosophy behind that is um, within that business audience, which is vast, People have four or five main information sources at least, and then dozens of secondary ones. So what they are doing now is um, having second-day leads on their lead story in the paper, meaning Bob Nardelli was uh, 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 resigned yesterday. We saw it on CNBC. So you're going to read a second-day lead saying, what now? What does it mean? More interpretive journalism, more uh, – uh, a lot of newspapers, including the Los Angeles Times, are, are now – um, moving to you know add more analysis, do things that only they can do, understanding and acknowledging that people got their news uh, in real time from electronic media. Um, 
other things, we I a year ago really wanted to merge the newsrooms at the LA Times, and now I really have a different view because I think you have to build relationships and workflow. And a lot of ideas, there are hundreds of ideas coming out of the print newsroom all the time. A lot of them are great, but really I'd say the majority of them probably won't work for the web. We have a new structure now in which there's a deputy on every print desk who is now dedicated to mining the paper for what something that will work on the web. Um, we're launching a new travel site uh, this week, and the, the deputy travel editor is thinking about how do I assign things that are going to populate a web database of travel destinations as well as be good one time in the paper. But we have a different web editor who ran LonelyPlanet.com before this who thinks in different ways, thinks about social networking, thinks about uh, building community. Um, these are skill sets that are not very common inside the newsroom right now. And what my hope is that more people in the newsroom start learning from this cross-pollination and uh, you may have people who are community managers, you may have people who are more like assignment editors, you may have people who are aggregating information not produced inside the building, but you'll also always have your pure investigative reporting, your pure beat reporting. We'll just have more uh, layers around that that we bring to people and present a larger picture of the uh, information marketplace. Yes. I've got a two-sided question, and the first one is from Kevin. Kevin, how do you raise the standards when you're using blogs as sources of information? How do you verify the truth and separate it from uh, urban legend? Okay, the question for Kevin, uh, if you find information on a blog, how do you verify its accuracy? Well, one of the, I mean, the, the the strongest guide in that room is is familiarity with the blog itself. You know, something that, that you build over time. You build trust in what you're reading over time. That's the way that media consumers should work about everything these days. They should look very askance at any new source to them, whether it's a new newspaper or a new blog. And if they are reading a blog and they start to find that it's been accurate in the past, that uh, then they can start to trust it more. Um, but blogs have, blogs have a certain advantage over print stories in that blogs and any website can link to the original, the original source of the information very easily. And you know, that's the great serendipity of reading a website, right? Is you can just start clicking and go to the original source and get taken to new sources and half an hour later you're in some completely different place than where you started and you've been given a really rich uh, dose of, of oftentimes high quality information. So, I think one readers have to be have readers have to be aware, but the problem is in general taking care of itself. I see, and just in the three years that I've been doing this, I've seen the level of reportage and integrity and 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 kind of completeness rising on the blogs that I follow. Now, part of that is I've weeded out some that I don't believe at all, and have kind of narrowed down my selection of sources. But I do see the quality rising as the readership becomes both more voluminous and more sophisticated. Yes, sir. Um, I'd like to ask all the members of the panel something about three words that were never uttered tonight but seem to dominate every newsroom that I've ever heard about, and that's the Drudge Report. Um, it seems to be a major driver of news and traffic to uh, a lot of sites. I was just wondering what each of you thought about the report, what purpose it serves, and uh, what you think the future might be for it. I thought you the were going to say Anna Smith. Just, just to repeat the question for the recording, let me just repeat the question. The question is, what about the Drudge Report? It was not talked about tonight. What is its role? How does it fit in? Yeah? Okay, who would like to take that? Well, I'll just answer briefly for myself. I think the Drudge Report was more influential Bef you know, several years ago when it was one of the first doing what it did and, and it was kind of new in the market. Now it gets huge traffic if, you know, if you get a headline on the Drudge Report, you're going to reach millions of people. There's, there's no doubt about that. But, you know, for my purposes, which are somewhat uh, secular, what I have to do, I'm interested in things about Los Angeles and about the media and about, you know, politics in California. Um, I don't, that's not one of my main stops. I don't find that I need to go to the Drudge Report. And when I do go there, it's um, usually for entertainment value more than for news value. But I, I think it has become a go-to place for, for millions of people. And um, 
I just I think its influence is lessened though as smarter, deeper, and again more sophisticated websites have sprouted up. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I agree the influence is, is lessened, but um, it, it's interesting if you, if you ask even now, um, but you know, people again, you know, sort of, I don't know, a stereotypical reporter uh, response to the Drudge Report is that it's low quality, it's entertainment value. And it, to me, it's missing the point of, of, of what the site represents and represented even more when it was one of fewer. Um, and that is, it, it orders things. Um, to me, it's actually like um, it functions in the way that a very good blog does or the way, say, The Daily Show does for network news. It's an ordering of what happened. And there are certain things the Drudge Report does, um, even if you don't agree or think it has even a certain political slant, a certain entertainment value slant. Um, if something happened in the general sort of you know, fishbowl uh, gossip period, you know, uh, internationally in the last two hours, there's very little chance that it's not represented by a link on the homepage of the Drudge Report. Something that, you know, if you had two hours completely blacked out and then went to a party and you looked at the Drudge Report once before you went in, it, it would probably be there. And, uh, and it is true that um, why do so many newspaper sites depend on Drudge traffic to make their numbers? You know, everybody wants the Drudge link. But that's not a very good business approach long term. You're not getting people engaging them. It should be gravy. It should be something else. You know, the national editor of the LA Times asked me two days ago, well, how do we get this on Drudge? Think about that. Um, the way the site is structured acknowledges something that a lot of newspaper websites, including mine currently, uh, don't. Something is a big headline, and then it moves down the page and up and around. And if you look at something that's near the end of the page, you, you, you probably get that it used to be a big headline, and it's probably been about four hours since it was that, and it tells you something about where that is uh, you know, in, in, in the gossip sphere right now. It's four hours old. It, it performs a, a service for you. So you know, going on with the, the same point, but think about very good websites perform some service like this, and it may be on a very na a narrow subject. But there's a sensibility that people buy into, and it, and, and, and it, and it delivers some value. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Uh, just to echo, I mean, I, if you look at Drudge, the the site has it's almost like a front page of its of a national newspaper, but you know, run by a maniac. Um, there's always a weird pet story, right? This woman was found in Alabama. She had 37 cats. Uh, she was up to her chin in excrement, uh, on and on. That, that's a staple drudge story. There's a big political scandal story. Uh, there's a, oh, a, a weather story. You know, trees are snapping in North Carolina as, you know, children are blown out of their boots or, you know, whatever the, the hurricane of the moment is. So, I mean, I think there's a, a sensibility that, that mirrors the Daily Show. I mean, you're seeing a, uh, a kind of um, a taste or an aesthetic applied to that. Page, but I mean, in the face of uh, of RSS, of real simple syndication, you know, Drudge I think has really dropped down in terms of importance because you know you're, you sort of can tailor uh, things to your taste. You don't have to rely on on someone to tell you sort of what the what the cool stories of the day was. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna say three out of four is pretty good. I want to make sure we take some other questions. Yes, ma'am. question is the advantage, you mentioned that the advantage of blogs was that you can link to a third party source, but that third party page can disappear. What do you do about that? And also, how do you handle retractions? And how do you handle retractions? Well, on the links disappearing, uh, it's good that we do it this way. I'll state the problem, and right. since Rob is the problem, right. he can state the solution. So, <laughs> Admittedly the problem. Yes, uh, what she's talking about is that, you know, on a blog like mine, I will send people off to read, you know, I'll, I'll s summarize a story and perhaps send someone off to two or three or four newspapers or other media sources that have the full stories, but after a few days or a week, in the case of the LA Times, that story is usually not available to the public. And that's uh, just part of their business model in terms of, you know, trying to, to monetize their archives, I believe. As far as retractions, um, one advantage of a blog is you can fix things real fast. I can fix things as soon as I know that there's a problem, someone's alerted me to something being wrong, I can fix it and I usually say so right on the story that I, or right in the post. And that's just one of the ways in which uh, you know, a, 
a blogger that has integrity, that is willing to fix things and to try to be as accurate as possible, has a little bit of a leg up on the print media in that things can be fixed faster, more transparently, and more equally. You know, there's always a complaint about a big front page store in the LA Times having something wrong and the correction runs on small on page three. You don't have to worry about that as much with a blog. Well, um, actually, Rob's not the problem. Rob's predecessor is the problem. Rob's trying to fix the problem. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, but but that's that newspaper sites are the problem. The the, the irony is that um, when you see the you know the paid content model, Wall Street Journal is a very special case that makes a lot of sense. New York Times. Um, I'm not a fan of that paid content at this moment in the, the industry's history. I think the New York Times model is a mistake. Um, uh, the intent of some of these is to, sh is to sh have value and establish a psychology of value in the market. If people should be shown it has value, they should pay. And, and things will go that way in, in, in a sort of layered way. But the reason why the LA Times stories go behind a paid wall after 10 days or 30 days, we varied it, is that some, you know, with all due respect, some idiot made a deal several years ago that I'm trying to get out of. And they don't make much money. The real business model is actually to have the content, you know, I'm going to get in legal trouble for saying that, but uh, uh, is to have the content open and to um, have it uh, come up associated with other content. So, for example, it's called productizing the archives. When you read a news story on LATimes.com that you may have reached through Google or LA Observed, you see, it's a, um, you see 10 related stories that we had, and you get your long tail you know, ad revenue off that, um, you're much more likely to be used. The people who pay for newspaper archives tend to be research-oriented, they tend to be institutions. Um, there is a very real issue with LexisNexis that the industry has, but that's not the reason why we have the archives on the web the way they are now. Um, it's something we're trying to, to untangle, but the philosophy that's going to pay off in the near future and far future is almost certainly to have completely free content and have people access it with a display advertising model we're also, at the same time, looking to create new content that databases that will be of value, that will be paid, you know, additional value-added stuff from the beginning, and that will always be paid. I do want to try to squeeze in some more questions, but I'll just add one thing to that. And this is only good for the New York Times. Uh, but there actually is an application called an RSS link generator that was built, I think, by a 16-year-old. And, um, and the New York Times actually still has it active. Uh, if you go to my blog and search link generator, you can find a link to it and you can get a, a permalink uh, as an RSS feed or as, as a, I'm not quite sure how the technology works, but you can get a permalink to a New York Times story, even if it might be behind the firewall. And I'm not quite sure how that works. Maybe you know. Yeah, yeah that, that's true. And, and one of the reasons, it, it, it varies. It may not work with a certain newspaper when they change their technology, but the you know, I certainly encourage that. It, not enough people know about it, so you frankly want, you know, bloggers to start using it because you do want people to go get the original story they referenced. Um, but it's the it's a it's a transitional thing, and eventually that's not going to be a viable way to do it. Joy, I wanted to ask what um, what is the commonality of RSS feeds in your realm, and also um, if you are feeding stories to other sites, Rob, with like help, whatever. Is the purpose to bring people back to the website and make money off your website, or is it off of your content? Because I don't see how we make money having a blog. I'm just going to try to summarize the question, but the question is, how do you make money off RSS feeds? What's the business strategy behind them? I'm just curious if everyone uses RSS feeds, and if when you're feeding stories out to other websites that aren't perhaps on an RSS feed, how are you making money? I'll give you a short answer. It's um, you can deliver the headline or the content. If you go to Yahoo News, my, the, most of the LA Times stories are just a headline, and, and it links back to LATimes.com. I've got an ad next to the story, and I make money that way. And that's one way of doing it. You can also feed ads inside the feed. That's now upshifting to multimedia, um, and run the equivalent of you know an ad before or in the middle of something. Uh, and finally, um, but mostly RSS can just deliver the content to any number of things. There's a thing called that we have that was a test product called My LA Times that's now on the site, my.latimes.com. That's a Web 2.0 interface. It's the kind of thing that anybody could have done, and it's a, a completely different gateway into all our stories by feed that you pick. It's aimed at a general audience that may read the LA Times. It's not uh, uh, for um, 
you know, hardcore web users. It's for people that are probably upshifting from print and new to the web and can pick and choose and get the paper the way they want it. And I make money because there's an ad on top of that. But it's... Claude, actually, let's hear from Claude because you're in the public radio world and you're repurposing the show as a podcast. What does that do to your ability to get reader, listener donations? Or can you sell advertising because you're not regulated there? What about you? Well, on, on the public radio side, I actually know almost nothing. Uh, we, I know that we, we podcast and we podcast for free. And in a certain sense, um, you know, NPR's mandate <coughs> is not to make money. It is national public radio. And for that reason, I think for, uh, for the foreseeable future, I think that the podcasts will be free uh, in the same way that uh, public TV should be free in the same way that NPR should be free. Um, on the TMZ side of things, I think, you know, RSS feeds are, um, you know, I, I use them sort of to guide my reporting if I'm looking for additional uh, resources, you know, a variety of different stories might be happening simultaneously, or if there's one story I really want the maximum amount of coverage. I have Sage, which is, uh, I don't know how many people use Mozilla. I'm a big open source freak. Um, but Sage is something you can download. And I have, you know, Yahoo's News. I've got Reuters News. I've got the New York Times uh, feeds in there. And, you know, were I not in the news gathering business and were I just, you know, Joe Public or Jane Public looking for a story, uh, I think you, you got the answer from Rob, which is, you know, it, it really is content. I mean, if you've got the good story break and it's on an RSS feed, I'm going to come to you. It'll get out there and I'll wind up on your site. Um, I, I, I think that a lot gets made out of RSS feeds, you know, as, oh, well, it's, you know, news is going to go everywhere. Uh, not exactly. I mean, I, I think we're at a, a point where, well, I'll leave it at that. Actually, I think that uh, what I know a little bit about the importance to KCRW of podcasts and streaming, and the, one of the things it's done is it's expanded it, the station's reach and its listener base uh, geographically uh, in, a, in a big important way. There's some percentage, 20% or something, of the contributions now come from outside of yeah, the listener we, area? I will say from an impact standpoint, radio's strength has always been its, its locality. Uh, it's the reason why satellite radio, I think, hasn't penetrated, because certainly uh, it's more fun to be injected with the Ebola virus than it is to listen to traditional terrestrial commercial radios. Um, but what it lacks is, you know, the ability to tell you what the 10 freeway is doing or a story that relates to your backyard, the Santa Monica City Council meeting or on and on. And uh, I think what we found is, I mean, you know, Nick Harcourt and uh, Ariana Morgenstern are the two people behind Morning Becomes Eclectic, and they have a show called Sounds Eclectic. And KCRW has really become a, a national uh, place to hear new music first uh, now that MTV sort of got out of that business. Uh, in a way that we never could have prior to the web. Uh, I want to, uh, I'm going to wrap it up now. It's been 90 minutes. Let's uh, thank our panelists. If you're just visiting us uh, for the night, uh, please, please feel free to come down and say hi to the panelists if you'd like. We'll take about five, ten minutes, and then we're going to do a wrap-up with the students. So you're welcome to stay and hear that if you like, but it probably won't be interesting to you if you haven't uh, participated in the uh, first four sessions. So thanks again, guys. I appreciate you coming. Thank you. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com.